This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. I'm a science journalist, and today we're talking with a researcher whose work I've covered a few times. Dr. Noemi Procopio is a forensic scientist and biotechnologist at the University of Central Lancashire in England. Today, she's sharing about her work scraping bones to look at the clues their proteins may provide for crime scene investigations. When you think about forensic investigators trying to work out when a person has died, what methods come to mind? Possibly because of once wildly popular television shows, things like analyzing the bugs that are crawling about on a body. But that and some of the other established methods for estimating time since death don't work so well for bodies that have been around for a while and have weathered away to mere skeletons. In this episode, Noemi tells us about how researchers could use proteins and bones to tell time, which could someday help address a backlog of unidentified bodies. And she shares about her experience working with cadavers on body farms. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for talking with me, Noemi. Thank you. That's a, that's a real pleasure for me, actually. One of your major areas of focus is studying proteins to work out when someone died. Why is that necessary? Um, when you watch some of these forensic television dramas, it seems like they already have methods to do this. Yeah, well, <laughs> TV drama are, are, yeah, are wonderful, but sometimes a bit oversimplistic. So you may see something that uh, it's, it's real on the TV show, but then in the reality, it's not really like that. And one of the major issues we had in forensic science, actually, is identifying like when a person died, mm -hmm. especially if you don't have um, a kind of like fresh cadaver, if we can say fresh. So fresh is one of those stages that we identify as forensic scientists, uh, which are like succeeding in the, in the process of decomposition. And um, whenever the cadaver is at the point in which you just have like skeletons and, you know, bones, it's much, much harder to understand when the person died in comparison with when you still have uh, soft tissues there to do these kind of estimations. So basically what we can do with proteins is by looking at proteins in bones, we can understand when, well, that would be the final goal of my research, actually, understanding when a person died. Mm -hmm. And that's because of like how stable and reliable proteins are in bones. So um, the beautiness of proteins that I discovered during my PhD is actually that they are much more stable than DNA or RNA or any other kind of like molecule that is normally used in, in science. So basically, uh, also when DNA is not um, there anymore or it's too degraded to give any kind of informative um, type of, you know, information, uh, proteins are still there. So you can still find proteins in dinosaur bones, in fossils, and that's why they can be so powerful in forensic science. Because imagine you have like um, some skeletal remains and uh, they've been exposed to the sun for, you know, a long period of time and so on. DNA may be degraded, but proteins, some proteins will still be there. And therefore, by targeting those specific kind of proteins, we are trying to understand how we can correlate their survival or modification with the time that is passed uh, since death. So it sounds like for fresh cadavers or bodies that still have something left on them more than bones, some of these other techniques can still be used. But after that point, proteins and bones might be a helpful way to find out um, the time since death. Yes, yes, that's exactly the point. We have so many things we can do when it, when when the cadaver is still kind of fresh. We have entomology, which is extremely helpful. So basically, entomology is the study of insects and how the uh, succession of insects can uh, be used on a body, can be used to determine when a person died. Um, when the body is extremely fresh, we can look at other um biochemical parameters or uh, measuring the temperature of the cadaver, uh, checking the um, rigor mortis, the libor mortis. So we have many different kind of like, um, I would say, things that we can measure somehow. But whenever you just have bones, that kind of estimation becomes really, really challenging. Also because bones can be affected by the uh, weather, uh, so there is a process which is called weathering because essentially it's due to weather. Mm -hmm. uh, so imagine, uh, you know, a cycles of like rain and then uh, bones getting dried and then rain again and then getting dried and so on. That can induce uh, modifications on the bones, kind of crackings, 
um, or uh, for example, the sun uh, rays that can hit the bones and can induce this phenomenon that we call sun bleaching. So it's almost like bleaching the bones. The bones are becoming whiter. Mm. Uh, and that's not necessarily associated with the time that is passed since death, but is more associated with the ve- with the weather. Also, like imagine you have a skeleton which is partially buried. Um, you may observe some bones of a color and then, you know, for example, those in contact with the grass, they will be like greenish and then those buried can be more you know brownish and then those ones that are exposed maybe they are some bleach and they're white so if you get all those bones um and then you look at them they may look completely different but in the end they could belong to the same individual just like the way in which the body's been placed can actually influence how the bones appear and therefore people studying these uh, bone weathering types of concepts are uh, absolutely aware of the limitations that these methods has. And they are um, clearly saying that actually this is not a method that we can totally rely on to estimate the time elapsing death because that's, you know, affected by too many variables. Yeah, that makes sense. So I would love for you to share with the audience more about the approach that you use to study the decomposition of bones. Uh, but first, I think it might be helpful to share a little bit about the science behind it. Can you talk a br- very briefly about the proteome? What is it? And um, yeah, how do you study it? Absolutely. Yeah. So basically, when we talk about proteome, we talk about uh, the set, the full set of proteins present in a specific tissue in our case which is bone so we're gonna say bone proteome but you can also talk about the proteome of a of an individual and that will be like a full proteome belong like basically the set of proteins produced by uh, a full uh, individual like a full organism uh, in our specific case we do proteomics on bones which means uh, we are extracting all the proteins present in the bones um, and then we uh, analyze them, first of all, in a way that is called untargeted. So basically, we are not looking for specific um, proteins yet, because in a first kind of stage of this work, you will need to explore the full set of proteins extracted, those that basically survived. And then you want to see how many of them you have, how much in terms of like abundance, and so on. And then once you identify some specific potential candidates that can be useful to correlate, you know, the, the amount of specific proteins and the time elapsed since death, then at that stage, the study can become more focused towards specific targets. So um, you can both perform an untargeted type of analysis uh, or a targeted one. And that's, you know, one is not excluding the other one. I would say it's more a process. You start with the untargeted and then you move towards those targets that you identify as potential uh, informative proteins for estimating these uh, parameter. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, first forensic scientists need to understand the collection of all proteins and the proteome. Um, so that requires just looking at everything. That's the untargeted part. And then after you do that, you might find some specific ones that serve as good markers of the time of death or other characteristics. And that's the targeted. Okay. What are some of the different clues that we can draw from looking at the proteome? We've talked a little bit about time of death, but what are some of the other ones? Yeah. So my study involves essentially uh, trying to address two main points. One is the time since death. And that's what um, we are discussing about. But then the other one is also trying to understand something about the uh, chronological age of a person. Mm. So when I say chronological, I just mean basically the uh, age uh, in years of that person. So um, imagine we, uh, again, we are in a crime scene and we find a skeleton and um, the anthropologists can easily uh, understand if the person is like an adult or if it's a juvenile or whatever. Uh, in case we are dealing with adults, uh, it gets quite difficult to estimate precisely the age of that person at the time of death. Uh, and that's what we call the age of death. So basically the chronological age of that person. And as you can understand, that would be like an, another very informative clue for um, investigators and the police, uh, because like if you don't know, for example, who that person is, understanding precisely that age 
the age of that person can really help in refining, you know, the, the potential list of like individuals uh, to overall identify then the individual. So um, understanding the age starting from bones, it's challenging when you're dealing with adults, uh, you can look at some specific uh, parameters. So by morphologically examining the bones, by looking at specific features in specific bones, you can get an estimation. But um, dealing with adults, it's complex. Like I was very impressed once I went to uh, this website. It's basically an Italian website on which they put together uh, all the information about um, unidentified uh, individuals that they may find somewhere or missing people. So it's, it's like a, a website in which they put information about people that they eventually found dead and then they are trying to, you know, put a name to that person and so on. And so in those cases, it's crucial to give how, the, the, how many uh, details, the, the yeah, the, the more details you can, to the families in order to understand if they can eventually recognize, you know, a family member or a friend or whatsoever. And if you go on those websites, when they find uh, skeletal remains, adults, sometimes for the age, estimated age, they put an asterisk, mm-hmm. which means like literally like no clues. And that's really scary because if you don't have any kind of, you know, soft tissues there anymore, you can't recognize the person because the facial structure is not there anymore and you're just basically have a bunch of bones if you can't either understand the age of that person uh putting a name it's it's extremely challenging so my my research is is trying to go in that direction like instead of having an asterisk having like an estimation of 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 an age um maybe it's not going to be the most accurate estimation but if it's a radian estimation with a plus minus you know X amount of years, that will really help and will really improve the situation that we have right now. So, so that's another information that can be given by proteins. And that's all associated with the fact that um, our bodies are producing proteins uh, in certain moments of our life, uh, depending on, on what is needed at that point of life. So when you're like a young person, then your body will need specific proteins and then they will be produced. And some of them will accumulate in your bones. So basically, you can still find them in bones, despite maybe they are not necessarily bone proteins, but they are, you know, produced by you know liver or uh, any other organ. And then they are traveling in your blood and then they are reaching bones and they are trapped in bones. So you can find them there. But then whenever you get more adult, uh, for example, that protein may not be needed anymore. So the body won't produce that protein anymore, but you will still see that protein levels going down and down and down the more you get older because it's not accumulating anymore because the body is not needing anymore, it's not producing anymore. So by looking at how these specific proteins can either decrease over time or increase if that's a protein that is more needed into the elderly stage of life, then again, that can be something that can really help to understand the age of person and then overall this will have like important forensic implications okay so the collection of proteins and even certain specific proteins can sort of serve as clocks they can serve as clocks for time since death or how old someone is, was when they died um, how did you start to study this possibility yeah so i started during my phd basically at that time when i when i accepted the offer for the phd um I was speaking with my supervisor and he was doing proteomics, but more on uh, archaeological and paleontological applications. So he's more interested in like identifying species. Um, so basically like, you know, if a piece of bone is like a cow or a sheep or goat from these archaeological collections of bones. And when they were interviewing me, um, the original plan was to apply proteomics to mummies to understand how proteins can survive for prolonged periods of time and understanding if if the cause was due to how proteins are behaving. And I was very honest. I was like, yeah, I'm I'm interested, but I'm I'm more interested into the, the forensic kind of aspect of this. So if you feel we could try to apply the same method but to forensics instead of to mummies and archaeology, I will be, you know, more more interested. And I've been lucky because both my my main supervisor and my co-supervisor, they were like 
super, you know, elastic and they understood eventually the potential and they said, yeah, maybe, why not? So that's, that's how I started. Mm-hmm. Um, so my experiments were done on um, piglets yes. that were um, basically collected by farms. So we weren't um, killing any, any animal for my research. So basically we were looking for these kind of like dead piglets that are dying for natural causes um and there is like there are specific companies which are going around farm by farm collecting these piglets and then i was asking them to collect four of the same dimension possibly and then to keep them frozen whenever they were finding them and by the time i managed to got four of those piglets uh we started the the experiment so we we were investigating um how the proteome is affected by the time since death so we were um, so we buried these four piglets and then we left the piglets in the ground to decompose for um, a period of time that was ranging between one and six months. And at specific time points, we were going to the field um, and then digging up one of these piglets, identifying the bone of interest and then going back to the lab and doing all the analysis on the on the proteins. Uh, but before starting with this, because that was that took time because actually being able to collect four piglets of the same dimension and so on took a while and getting all the permissions in place and, and everything, as you can understand. Um, so I was doing some other experiments on other piglets bones that were used previously by, by others for, for other kind of research. And I was like trying to investigate how the proteome can be stable or not in different individuals. So I got um, tibia from different piglets, uh, some more young piglets and some uh, proper pigs. And the tibia is the leg bone, right? Yes. So basically the tibia is the um, the inferior portion of our legs. So basically we have in in our legs, we have like three main long bones. We have the femur, which is the long one. Um, And then uh, underneath the knee, we have tibia and fibula. So tibia is the big one. Um, basically every kind of long bone can do the job, but the way in which I started basically was like, you know, there are these TVs available. Let's do some, some analysis Mm -hmm. because that was completely new. So we, uh, explored if these proteins were stable, were similar or not in these different peaks. And what we, uh, identified is that a, a bunch of proteins were behaving in a, in an interesting way. So their abundance was either increasing or decreasing depending on the age of these individuals. And that was something that was uh, statistically significant, which in science means whenever you apply some statistical test to evaluate if your results are, uh, you know, reliable or if they are due to, uh, if they could be due by chance. Uh, and whenever they they appear to be statistically significant, it means that um, it's unlikely that they happen to be there by chance, but that there is actually you know a biological phenomenon uh, underneath. And and starting from there, I I started to understand that actually there was a good connection between the proteome and the age of individuals. Despite at that time I was just working with pigs. So I wasn't actually sure if the same was then real for a human or not. And that's something that just I just explored after my PhD when I started to be a proper you know, researcher with my own team. So that was the beginning for both time since death on one side and uh, age of death on the other side. Right. Yeah. And then you've also done quite a bit of work with uh, human cadavers now too. Can you share about how you extended the work that you started with animals to humans? Yeah, absolutely. That was like the the huge priority. So after I finished my PhD, I said, well, this is very cool. There is a lot of potential. But of course, if we are talking about forensic science, we want to do science that at the end of the day is applicable to uh, real forensic context. And knowing how important can be forensic science results, because overall, they could, you know, at the end of the day, you could put someone in jail, basically, depending on a forensic type of results. Mm-hmm. So you need to be extremely careful with your results. The, the, the things you do have to be validated and so on. So, of course, the, the step moving from pigs to human was uh, ne- necessary and required uh, before being able to propose this to the forensic community. So 
um, I applied for a research grant and I've been uh, lucky enough to get it. And with that big grant, I've been allowed to do uh, research with human cadavers. And that was done because of uh, multiple collaborations I established with these human taphonomy facilities, uh, which are also known to be um, called body farms after Patricia Cornwell's book, which mm -hmm. was called Body Farm. Uh, and basically, there are these places which are called body farms in the United States, um, led by different universities. And they were all very interested in working with me on this specific project, letting me to sample their human bones um, from their collections. And that's how I started to explore more about how proteomics can be actually useful for forensics on humans and not on pigs. All right. Can you share about what it's like to work on a body farm? What is the what is it like when you go there and, and what do you see? And then how do you take samples? Yeah, the body farm experience is it's great. Honestly, I have like this kind of little um, story to tell you. So basically, when I was doing my PhD, um, I remember we were doing these um, journal clips. So basically, a journal club is when you discuss about some, some publications from other groups in a critical way with the people of your team. And uh, basically, my team was all made up by archaeologists, paleontologists, and so on. We were doing these kind of journal clubs in pubs. So that was very, very fancy and interesting. <laughs> but every time we were going to the pub discussing about some papers, I was understanding pretty much nothing because they were all talking about things that weren't necessarily what I was doing. Uh, so those journal clubs to me were like a bit, you know, like I, I wasn't really understanding everything every time. But I remember once in these journal clubs, there is a guy of another team and he says, oh, well, you know, I saw this story about the body farms. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, yeah, you know, those places in the United States where they do research on human bodies and they can do, you know, they can place the bodies on the ground and then let them to decompose and so on. And at that moment, I think it was my second year of my PhD, I just had like a click in my brain. I was like, okay, that's my next target, like working in a body farm. And then when, I, when I've been there the first time, which was um, just before the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, in Tennessee, which is, by the way, the oldest, um, the, um, yeah, the oldest body farm. Uh, and it's the first one in which I was allowed to do some, some research and doing some samplings. Uh, when I put my feet into the body farm, I was like, oh my God, like this was, it's, it's creepy to say, but it was kind of like a dream mm -hmm. that in that moment uh, started to be real. Um, and and it's extremely interesting. So I was imagining, well, I was prepared because I knew where I was going. But I think until you're not there, you don't really know what to expect. Like you, you can't be really prepared despite you know you know what you're doing mm -hmm. um so the, the Tennessee one uh, has been an interesting experience for me because I was expecting a body farm to be a, a huge place like very very you know wide with like a, a lot of space and you know uh, but then it, it turns out that the Tennessee one is actually um, the eldest, like, the, yeah, basically the first one that was open. And um, they are a bit, um, uh, so the, the place in which the body farm is located is actually a bit limiting them in terms of spaces because they have a river on the side and then a hill on the other side. So they can't really expand as they would like to eventually. So basically the space is not that huge. And it's plenty of these uh, bodies decomposing. And basically, when you open the doors after, like, you know, a couple of meters, the first body is there. Oh, wow. And I was expecting, you know, to, to have, a you know, a gate open and then walking for, for some time before seeing the first body. But actually, you really open the gate and you find a cadaver in front of you. And I was like, whoo. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so that was, was very interesting. Um, so that one, is, it's different from the others two I visited in, in Texas, for example, because in Texas, as you can understand, they, they don't have any, any limitation in terms of space. So in Texas, uh, spaces are huge and the body farms are, are huge as well. Mm. So for those ones, before you know accessing to the first cadavers, you need to travel with a car for several, several miles. Oh, wow. uh, whereas the Tennessee one is very, very different. So 
yeah, it's it's a very interesting experience. How are the bodies placed? Like, what do you see when you walk in? Yeah, it, 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 exactly. That's the important and interesting thing for a researcher because you can understand basically more about how the whole process works uh, when you when you see how they are located and so on. So, for example, um, in Tennessee, um, so it it really depends. But this is real for for every um, body form, actually. Um, this really depends on uh, the experiments going on. So basically, if there are no specific projects going on, and basically they have just the cadavers there, which are decomposing naturally, and then at the end of the decomposition, the bones are collected and placed in their osteological collections. Then, uh, so basically, when they are not, for example, concerned about potential microbial contamination between between two individuals or, you know, contaminating soil and so on, they are located very close to each other. Mm. And that's true, especially for Tennessee, where the space is a, is a kind of a limitation. So basically, you will have like a body and then lying down next to it, another one, and then next to it, another one. And they are separating each other by some kind of like... Um, you know, bricks or something, which is kind of creating their kind of own area. And um, sometimes they are covered with um, cages. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they are there to prevent the access um, of um, scavengers, big mammals um, or birds. And that's especially an issue in Texas, for example. Mm. Um, so it, it really depends. Like in Tennessee, there weren't many cages, if I remember properly. Maybe there weren't at all. Um, but again, it really depends on the experiment that is going on. Sometimes, for example, if you're doing an experiment where you're studying decomposition in bird environments, they they could be buried. So you couldn't see basically you know, the, the body on the ground because they are placed uh, in the ground inside. Or, uh, for example, um, they can be used for specific projects such as, you know, studying the microbial succession uh, underneath cadavers. And if that's the case, you will need to use a specific place uh, in the ground that is kind of like virgin. So basically where where there's not been any other decomposition going on recently, because otherwise the, the, the microbiome, so the population in the in the ground, those little bacteria and insects, will be already uh, affected by, you know, a previous decomposition. So in that case, it should be a more, um, you know, separated uh, area where you don't have anything going going on in the in the closed kind of area. So it, it really depends. Like Texas, for example, is huge. Uh, like both body farms I visited and I worked on, um, they have like cages protecting the um, the cadavers. And then sometimes they have different types of experiments going on. Like in the one in Texas State, um, they have a kind of a, I don't know how to define that, but you know, those kind of um, stocks that are brought around with, um, trains, for example, or ships to to you know bring you know food or things. I'd like to transport basically items. Um, and if you can get one of those placed in the body farm and you fake a kind of like home environment inside, placing you know a table, some chairs, and something like simulating a room, mm-hmm. and then bodies can be placed inside in this kind of a little closed environment. And they can study, for example, uh, decomposition uh, by burning. So sometimes they turn, they basically fire up the whole thing, simulating like, you know, there is a fire in a house. And at the same time, they are on one side training the firemen because they are going there. Uh, well, that's something, you know, arranged in advance and so on, but that's proper training for them. So they, they attend the body farm and they are getting trained by this specific you know scene by looking for burnt cadavers and how they may appear and so on and then eventually researchers can research on these burnt bones and and so on Hmm. sometimes they use the cadavers to train cadaver dogs so you know by placing them in different types of like places in the body farms and then looking at you know training dogs to look for the cadavers uh i know there are other places like for example the one in canada in which they are simulating um, like a natural disaster. So where they place um, things such as if there was like an earthquake, uh, 
like uh, pieces of concrete. And in, in between these blocks of concrete, they place the bodies because training individuals to look for people, like real people, by using real people is different than training them by using fake, you know, silicon body pieces or, or whatsoever. And that's the same for training dogs. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's a whole world full of, you know, possibilities to, to teach people, to train individuals, to train the police, uh, to do research. It's, it's unbelievable how, how much potential there is in these, in these places to, to do research in forensics. It's, it's ex- extremely fascinating. Yeah, I did not realize there was that wide of a breadth of research going on on body farms. Yeah. Very exciting. So when you go to one of these places, you're often going not to look at some of these exotic experiments, but to look at um, a cadaver that's either been buried or been placed on the br- on the ground. Um, how how do you sample those skeletons and, and what does that look like? Yeah. So as I said, we are more interested in bones. So um, we normally tend to wait until, you know, the, the cadaver is completely skeletonized. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that stage, that's when we are starting to, you know, do our sampling. So there are several possibilities. Um, and I will tell you more about these. So what, what normally happens in, in body farms is whenever a body is completely skeletonized and the research, uh, you know, the experiment on the proper decomposition are ended and so on, and the, the bones can be moved to the permanent skeletal collection, uh, they are normally lifted by, you know, from the ground and being brought into, you know, these kind of collections associated with each uh, body farm. Um, the issue, though, that I, I just realized being there, so that's, that's how I say, like, I, I've been lucky to be there because you are more aware of the processes, you know, um, involving bones and, uh, and, and everything. So the issue is whenever the bones are going back to the facility, prior to their long-term storage in these boxes, um, they have to be cleaned. Um, Sometimes you can still have like some kind of like soft tissues being uh, dried on the bones. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in in these situations, you need to get rid of those um, pieces of soft tissues because then these bones in the end are used by, for example, anthropologists to do their research and so on. So you want a nice, clean defleshed um, and non-smelly bone, right? So um, the issue, though, is that to reach that point of having a nice, clean bone, um, the bones are often uh, macerated. And when I say macerated, I mean, yeah, so basically uh, um, there are several ways to do these kind of cleaning processes, but in most of the situations, it means the bones are... um, uh, Put in a pot of water, uh, hot water, and um, and then they are just like staying in this like kind of hot water. Sometimes with some detergent, sometimes without detergent, but most of the times with kind kind of like soap, um, like dish soap or um, other types of detergents to get rid of these like greasiness and the smell and the soft tissues and so on. Um, and and the temperature of these kind of like hot water it can really depend as well sometimes it's about like well i'm I'm thinking in uh, degrees celsius but about like 50 60 degrees celsius uh, but sometimes they can reach up to like 90 degrees and in celsius like 100 degrees is when the 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 water is boiling so 90 degrees is almost boiling water um and basically that means we are not necessarily me but in general (laughs) the bones are almost boiled and mm. as you can understand, that can affect somehow the molecular profile that we can get out from these bones. So it Reason can why? The proteins. Yeah, it can change the proteins. It can affect the DNA survival in the proteins. And then, of course, in bones, we have the other mod- molecules as well. We have some kind of small molecules which are called metabolites, mm-hmm. uh, and they can be affected as well by you know, putting these bones in, in, in water, submerging the bones in water, in very hot water. Um, reason why uh, we started to understand that having uh, bones sampled after they've been boiled couldn't, couldn't you know, won't be great. So we moved towards uh, some non-treated bones. 
that essentially means either bones that still have to be cleaned and processed, so they could be a bit smelly eventually, uh, or sometimes we were sampling directly on the field. So, you know, going uh, on the top of these skeletal remains, if they were skeletal, sometimes they were not skeletal, they were very fresh bodies. And we were sampling in loco. Uh, so basically we were, you know, finding the tibia and then uh, taking a sample directly on the field. So when I say taking a sample, we uh, are um, dealing essentially with a very small uh, piece of bone. And with a small piece of bone, um, like the dimension of, um, I don't know, maybe a, a fingernail, mm. um, that kind of cube, like a dimension, like a, a cubic dimension about that size, um, we can get all the molecules out. We can get DNA, we can get proteins, we can get metabolites, and we can do all our analysis. So we need to cut a piece of bone by using a Dremel, um, which is a drill. Mm -hmm. And uh, by drilling into the bone, you can cut out a little window, if you want, like a little cube, and um, that's it. Or sometimes instead of cutting out a little cube, you can do some kind of um, drilling some sort of lines uh, as, as, you were, as if you were carving lines in the bone. And by the process of carving these lines with the same drill, you will get some powder. And the powder, again, is good enough for all the analysis we have to do. So, of course, as you can imagine, if you are in a lab, getting the powder and doing these precise lines, it's, it's easier. Mm -hmm. If you are on the ground uh, with, a, with a cadaver that is not even completely decomposed, it's much more challenging. And it's almost impossible to get any powder because if the bone is not dry and if there is you know, soft tissue and fluids there, it's basically impossible to get any powder. So in that case, you will just cut a little um, chunk of bone and then you will bring that piece of bone into the lab for all the analysis. So when, when we have like that chunk, we uh, use a technique which is called a freezer meal. So essentially, um, we use a, a block which contains liquid nitrogen, which is a, a super, super cold um, liquid, extremely cold temperature, which is allowing you to um, then uh, smash uh, the bone by using some little um, steel, uh, either beads or little steel cylinders that you put in the tube together with your piece of bone. And then there is a mechanic action, which is moving your tube up and down into this liquid, which is extremely cold. So in that way, the bone is reduced into powder, but without uh, increasing its temperature because Increasing temperature will affect our proteins. Okay. So we have to work with extremely cold environments to produce powder whenever we can't get the powder directly because of, for example, sampling on the field. So that's, a, that's an interesting and very different experience from what we, we started to do because we were starting in these very clean and organized uh, skeletal collections mm -hmm. and we ended up in texas sampling uh you know decomposing cadavers under the rain and that was like a completely different experience from the clean uh you know relaxing one in the lab so you never know what to what to <laughs> expect yeah that sounds like quite the challenge <laughs> yeah so it sounds like you're either you're either drilling the bones to get powder or you're kind of grinding them in this way that that protects the content of the proteins evolved. So what have you found from studying human bones so far? Yeah, that's been, that's been very rewarding so far because we started on uh, by working on four uh, human individuals and they were four female donors um, that were used for a different type of project. And then uh, when I was talking with this researcher that was doing this research on these four uh, women, she said, well, I still have a, a sample of bone. And of course, considering how precious are these donors and mm -hmm. how valuable is their, you know, the, the gift that they are giving by donating their body, we want to maximize the amount of information we can get from any, any kind of like single piece of sample you may have in your hands. And she said, I'm not using them, so we could collaborate on something. And I was like, yeah, I want to try for yomics. So we started with uh, these four uh, women and we extracted proteins, but then also the metabolites that I was telling you are small molecules. 
And um, so basically extracting proteins uh, has been uh, the same process that we are normally um, using on pigs. So um, you add some kind of acid and then the, the bone, it's starting to be, uh, we say, demineralized. So we are releasing the proteins from the mineral matrix of the bone, which is a strong mineral, otherwise bones can't be you know, that hard. And uh, and then uh, once you allow the proteins to be out in solution, then you do a set of steps to purify, concentrate them, and then you chop them in pieces, and then they are ready for the analysis. So we did our analysis with an instrument which is called mass spectrometer, which is essentially allowing you to measure the size of the, the mass of specific pieces of these proteins. And then once you know their masses, you can work back uh, with some databases understanding which protein actually was um, the one that generated that kind of fragment. So in the end, you can you can understand which proteins you have and how many you have and so on. And it was very interesting to see that some of the proteins I found in pigs to be useful, for example, to reveal uh, age of death uh, type of information, were the same ones that were also useful on humans. Mm-hmm. And that was like... Uh, Amazing. Also because the the protein that I found in pigs that was a good indicator for the age of death um, is a protein that is produced in fetus and then uh, it's not produced anymore. So considering that these donors that we were dealing with were elderly, um, almost yeah, elderly women, because I, if I remember correctly, the youngest one was aged 61 years old and the oldest was um, 91 years old. Hmm. So I wasn't really sure if I could still see that protein in a lady, which is like 91 years old, because imagine, you know, that protein is not produced anymore in your body uh, since you become like, you know, 16 or 17 years old. And then I wasn't really sure if I could still see that protein in an individual, which is aged 91. And actually the protein is still there. And the levels are decreasing, as I was expecting. And that was extremely, extremely nice to see, despite, of course, they were just like four individuals mm-hmm. and we need to expand the study to more to, to be sure that we are actually proposing something that can be useful. But that was, as, a, as I was saying, like a pilot study, but that helped us to understand that we were going in the right direction. And we found out the same for the time since death. So we were able to identify specific proteins which were um, either, you know, decreasing constantly with increasing uh, times past since death or um, proteins that were modified. So basically some proteins can accumulate some modifications just because of the time that is passing. Mm. So when, when, you know, a, a body stays there for one, two, three, ten years, then these modifications will just increase. And we found out that some of these modifications were increasing uh, in, a, in a way that was consistent with the time that was passing. So that was extremely um, good to see because that was the very first attempt I made in uh, humans. And then uh, I also found out that there was another group that was doing a research similar, applying my same findings, so proteomics to uh, bones from a cemetery. Hmm. And also they found some, some good correlations between the time elapsed since death uh, and the proteins that they, were, that they were able to identify. And then we applied the same to another, like in another study, the same technique to some bones we took from a cemetery in Italy. And we were able to understand, again, to find the correlation between the time that is passing post-mortem and the amount of proteins but also we were able to understand that basically proteins can reflect differences in the uh, type of burial environment. So in that circumstance, we had either bodies that were placed in the ground, so basically buried in a kind of like a wooden coffin in the ground, and that's it, mm-hmm. or bodies that were placed in a zinc-lined type of coffin into mausoleums, like in, in you know those kind of stony mausoleums that are not in the ground and... The, the bodies in that way are protected from the, um, you know, all those kind of insects and bacteria you may find in the ground, because in that case, it's a, it's more a kind of like um, a closed type of environment, a bit more protected, if you want, because of the zinc linen. 
And um, what we identified is that proteins are behaving in a different way. So uh, the, the, the type of burial is actually reflected onto the proteomic signature that we can see. We can see that the proteins in the, uh, in the bodies uh, placed in the ground are um, decomposing quicker than those that are placed in the mausoleums because in those cases you don't have the action of these uh, you know soil bacteria mm -hmm. and insects and scavengers and everything so it's it's all very interesting and I wasn't really expecting to go that far with proteins to be honest but mm. it seems to be promising yeah, I'm glad that you shared a little bit about some of the related work that you've been doing, not just uh, beyond time of death, time since death and age of death. Um, and I, I remember also from some of your earlier work that you did some animal studies on different environments. Do you mind saying a little bit about that? It just seems like proteins have have many clues that they could offer <laughs> forensic scientists. Totally, totally, yes. Um, so we were also interested in understanding, for example, if um as we said, like if the environment can play a role in the proteins or not in the bones. And a very interesting one to me was a study we made uh, by using mice. And we were um, trying to understand if proteomics can also work for submerged cadavers. So basically, we were um, putting these mice into uh, four different types of water. Uh, so that was an, an experiment we, we ran in the lab by using water mm -hmm. bottles. And then in each bottle, we uh, either collected some water from the swimming pool or water from the seaside, water from a pond, or just used tap water as a kind of a control. And then we placed many, many mice in these bottles. And then we were uh, monitoring their decomposition and also collecting bones and doing proteomics at specific uh, time points as well. So after a week, after three weeks, four weeks, and so on. And then we realized that, first of all, also in this case, so also whenever you're in a condition in which the body is underwater, uh, the proteomics can still uh, be useful to reveal information for how long, uh, so uh, for the time that is passed mm -hmm. from the submersion in this specific case, uh, so that the proteins are reflecting the time passed um, of the, in the water for the cadaver. Uh, but also, we were able to find specific protein modifications associated with specific water environments. So, for example, the uh, bodies placed in the chlorinated water uh, have some specific modifications in proteins which are different from those that you will find in a salty water type of environment. And uh, that was very interesting. I wasn't expecting that, but um, that's reflecting the, the potential of proteomics to reveal additional information, uh, for example, to understand if, you know, a body has been found in the water and then for how long it's been placed in the water. And then was the body, you know, decomposing on the on the ground and then been just put in the water and then after an hour it has been discovered? Or was the full decomposition going on in the water and then you may find some specific, you know, information in the proteins that can tell you, well, actually, yeah, potentially that was in water or no, that was on the ground. That's that's making you know um, making the the results a bit oversimplistic, but it's just to explain you like the potential of these methods. Mm -hmm. Of course, we need to do more more validations, more studies that has to be translated uh, on, onto humans every single time. Um, but there is um, yeah a lot of potential there. So we've talked a lot about proteins up to this point, but that's not all that your lab works on. Um, what are some of the other methods that are complementary to proteins and what are they telling us? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So my, my lab is called Forensomics. And basically that means we are trying to apply multiple omics, and I'm going to tell you what, what omics are, uh, to forensics. So when I say omics, uh, we were saying proteomics, proteomics. So proteomics, as, as, um, as we define proteomics as the study of the whole set of proteins uh, in a specific tissue, uh, then you will say, uh, well, when, when you're studying the full set of molecules in a specific tissue, you will say you're doing an omic. And then if you're studying the full set of proteins, then you will do proteomics. Mm -hmm. If you study the full set of metabolites, which are small molecules, then it will be metabolomics. And if you study DNA in general, that will be genomics um, and so on. So foreign zomics means essentially every omic, not every omic, but 
multiple omics applied to forensics. Uh, so basically, that means that we do not just proteomics, but other stuff. Um, so we are interested, for example, in uh, studying also DNA as a way to estimate, again, the age of an individual, because we know that um, DNA is modified in a specific way um, getting older. So um, this kind of science, not kind of science, this, this uh, apl application of science mm -hmm. has a specific name, which is called epigenomics mm -hmm. um, or epigenetics. So when you study those modifications taking place on DNA, um, you talked about epigenetics. And uh, these modifications in particular are uh, called methylations. Uh, but basically, it's a molecule that is added in specific portions of DNA. Um, and that uh, addition and accumulation is increasing, uh, getting older. So what happens is you can target the amount of these modifications in DNA and link them to the age of the individual. Now, this is something that um, has been proven to be extremely precise um, in general on biological fluids, and that's why it's been already applied uh, in forensic science, also in, in real case works. So, for example, if you have a blood trace uh, that is found on a crime scene, you may do these analyses, and you may get an estimation of the age of the person that left that blood on the crime scene with a precision that I think right now is plus minus 1.5 years, hmm. which is extremely precise. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you can easily, you know, um, refine a list of suspects or, or whatsoever. Um, the same is true for saliva. Saliva is working the same. And it's also working with dried uh, saliva. Like if you get a cigarette butt. And if you do an analysis, you can get the estimation of the age of the person that was put in the cigarette butt in their mouth with a precision that is, again, about plus minus 1.5 years or two years, which is extremely interesting. The same is true for, you know, semen. And in general, biological fluids are behaving very well with this kind of methodology. So when I was thinking about a way to improve our estimations for the age, I thought we need to do also DNA mm. uh, besides proteins because ideally we could combine the two of them together to maximize our precision and, and the accuracy. Or for example, whenever DNA is not there anymore, uh, then you can do proteins because proteins are surviving better and so on. So uh, one, one area of application um, is this uh, study of these modifications in DNA. Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult to be done on bones, and that's why there are basically uh, just a, a bunch of studies. We try to do that, and we are trying to do it in a slightly different way, but the general principle is the same. And the reason why it's difficult is because getting a decent amount of DNA from a bone it's challenging. You will need to start from a lot of powder and we can't do that because we need to work with small amounts of powder to avoid to damage too much these donated bodies. But also imagine to be in a real forensic scenario where you have like, you know, not a full bone. Maybe mm -hmm. you will have just a fragment mm -hmm. or you don't want to damage the bone too much. So we, we are dealing in forensics with issues about the sample uh, size. So we can't really, you know, cut out two centimeters cubic of, of bone and getting the powder and getting the DNA. So that's why it's a bit challenging. Also, DNA can be affected by uh, decomposition. Uh, so we can deal with degraded DNA, which is fragmented and so on. So it gets complex. Uh, but we are we are doing it. So we will see what the results will say. But Ideally, combining the two together may improve uh, our estimations in a, in a good way. Yeah. And then other things we do is like metabolomics. So these small molecules are um, analyzed in the same way in which we analyze proteins with the same kind of instruments. And they can instead reflect more, again, the time since death. So for, for DNA, we're more talking about age of death. For metabolites, we are more talking about time since death. For proteins, potentially both. So metabolites can tell us um, the decomposition stage of a, of a person because they are reflecting the metabolo metabolic activity happening in, in the body. They can also reflect the uh, presence of bacteria, 
decomposers and, and so on. So they are well connected with the time since death. And that's something that we are investigating again in parallel with proteins to see if we can combine the two together. Yes. And then finally, uh, the, the other kind of um, line of research that is also going on in our lab, it's called uh, metabarcoding, which is essentially the study of bacteria um, in, a, um, in a way in which you can basically study either the succession of bacteria as a way to estimate time since death, And in that case, we're going to talk about dead bodies uh, on which we are expecting these successions of bacteria. So different um, bacteria colonizing at different time? Yeah, exactly. So basically, there will be specific types of bacteria arriving at specific times since death, and then some others, and then some others, and so on. And we know that that's um, also known to be a microbial clock which seems to be very precise for post-mortem interval estimation so, or time since death. So, um, so that's something that we can do on cadavers by looking at bacteria either on the cadaver or in the ground underneath the cadaver. Uh, but we can also apply this to living individuals. So we can, for example, take uh, samples of you know, mm, you know, a buccal swab or a skin swab or anything like that We can study the type of bacteria present in the mouth or on the skin, and they can reveal information on the person. So, uh, for example, the lifestyle, um, the geographical provenience, uh, and so on. So, again, imagine um, a situation in which you are in a crime scene, and then you find uh, a fingerprint. And then, of course, from the fingerprint, you can get the proper profile of the fingerprint and eventually find the, the person that left the fingerprint but in case you don't have any uh, you know comparison um, you, you know for example a comparison on the database is failing and you can't really identify the person you can extract those kind of like bacteria present on that specific fingerprint and you can get some information on this person oh, so wow. you can understand you know the, the provenience or um, you can understand the food habits drink habits smoker non-smoker and so on so that's interesting in in a different way but still very important for forensics hmm. is that work that um it sounds like that's a very new field or is that more um yeah, yeah it's it's relatively a new field uh, we have recently published a paper on which we were studying these Um, we called it touch microbiome, which is essentially the microbes you leave by touching an object. And we were comparing the DNA that the person is living down, which is called touch DNA. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're, you know, handling a glass and then you, you leave the glass and you leave your DNA, but also you leave your bacteria. So if you look at the DNA of the person, then you will analyze the touch DNA. If you look at the DNA of the bacteria, which are there, you will do the touch microbiome, which is what we did. Mm. And um, it's interesting because the microbiome can survive for up to a month. That's at least when, when we blocked our study, when, when we ended our study. But up to a month, you can still see a specific microbial signature, which is um, unique for the specific person that left that trace. Mm. So if you have a bunch of suspects, Uh, you may be able to understand which one left that fingerprint based on the bacteria and not based on the proper finger mark, which is extremely new. But again, being new, we need to understand how reliable these techniques may be if it's something that over after a specific amount of time is not reliable anymore. We need to understand uh, after how long the, the microbial population present on the skin of an individual Um, will stay stable before changing because then at that point you won't be able to put to, to do the match you know what I mean so again it, it's something super super new but with some potential that we are currently investigating I see yeah um, I guess do you mind saying a little bit more about the need for this kind of work I think you shared a statistic with me um, at some point in time of how many bodies go unden unidentified every year yeah That's actually uh, a, a good point. So unfortunately, the number of skeletonized remains um, that we can we can find and you know unidentified victims and so on are um, quite high in general. So I have some statistics for you 
uh, I have some data um, in the UK and basically they are uh, from 2013 and then I couldn't find anything more updated than that. But at that point, there was 1,500 unidentified bodies in the UK. But even more interestingly, um, according to some um, data from 2019 from the Department of Justice, there are in the US. currently 40 in the US. <laughs> yes, there are currently 40,000 unidentified bodies in the US, about 4,400 found per year. And what I found even more um, sad is that thousands of these 4,400 per year basically are remaining completely unidentified after one year of investigation. So that means that you know, all the money and economical efforts spent towards an investigation, in case you have an un unidentified body, um, imagine a thousand of them roughly per year after all the investigation, all the possible investigations still is unidentified. And that's really scary. And uh, as you can imagine, this can be the result of many different um, problems. Uh, there could be Human trafficking victims, that's quite a concern in the United States, for example. Uh, there could be cold cases where actually you don't know, you know, the, the, the identity of an individual and being it a cold case, it's just like a skeleton. Uh, war victims, that's quite um, contemporaneous, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say associated with war victims, we have mass graves. And mass graves are another uh, very, very challenging situation in which it's extremely difficult to understand the identity of, of these individuals. Um, think also about terroristic attacks, um, natural disasters. Think about the tsunami or, or earthquakes or anything like that. So it's, it's unfortunately very um, frequent to find unidentified bodies. And whenever they are reaching the skeletonized stage, then it's it's extremely challenging to understand who they are, especially if you don't have, you know, family members or friends uh, claiming for, uh, for them, asking, looking for them. Um, that's particularly true for human trafficking victims where parents and families, they, they don't really know what's going on and they are not necessarily, you know, aware of, you know, people moving from one country to another one or being moved. And and therefore, eventually, these people will never be in search for. And therefore, you know, identifying them, it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So with all of these different methods that your group is using, what is the end goal of your work? How do you see this potentially helping um, forensic investigators? Um, I think I'm, I'm still very passionate about in general time since death and, uh, age of death. So, uh, I'm, I'm very into this kind of like research. Mm -hmm. So, uh, once these, uh, estimating models will be developed. And, uh, and by models, both, you mean? Um, so basically we mean like, imagine you have like an equation or a formula, like a mathematical formula that you can use to estimate the age of a person uh, just by uh, applying, you know, doing, for example, proteomics and then getting the results and then using those results uh, with a kind of like a mathematical formula or, you know, something that is overall giving you a, a number, like a result, an estimation for, you know, time since death or age of death and so on. So to do so, of course, that will take time. But eventually, if we if we will be able to develop these kind of like equations, then, then people can use by, you know, checking how much of that specific proteins you have. And then starting from there, you could make a calculation, mm -hmm. basically. That's what, what I mean with modeling. But um, once we will be able to, to reach that point with bones, of course, I'd like to, to do the same on soft tissues as well. Um, right now, we are targeting more uh, relatively long time since death. So, of course, dealing with bones, it means that the, the body was there for a while. But the same things can be applied on very short timescales like after hours post-mortem mm -hmm. to understand if we can actually get the same kind of estimation, for example, for time since death on much, much shorter 
time scale that may be useful for you know the police uh, for you know a crime that just happened you know a few hours before and so on so that will be potentially the direction but also understanding more about all these variables that are actually able to affect our estimations because mm. we know that decomposition is such a complex phenomenon that is extremely challenging to then um use you know uh, some results and making sure those results will be reliable and true for everyone that's not the case we'll need to understand how then specific parameters which can either belong to the body like for example um the body mass or the cause of death is that affecting our results uh and so on but also the external uh parameters such as uh, you know the temperature Hmm. or uh, rainfall, humidity, sun exposure, um, type of soil, uh, the depth of burial, if the body is buried, if the body is exposed, and, and how eventually all these variables may or may not affect our um, potential candidates, protein candidates for these estimations, because that's something extremely important. You can't just like generalize some results uh, to to everything then of course you know after you get some results you need to validate and then you need to study all these kind of potential variables affecting them in understanding if, if they actually are affected or not and if so how to adjust that kind of formula we were talking about to take into account all these variables so it's it's a long process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the idea is that there could be these molecular um, characteristics, these proteins and metabolites and uh, characteristics of DNA that would be able to provide one way to figure out when someone died or how old they were when they died and even the conditions they were in. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that would be a dream yeah. probably in the next you know 20 or 30 years we will see thank you so much for telling me about your work noemi thank you for the, all the questions and for the chat <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about dr noemi procopio we've linked to a couple of stories i've written that include her work at scienceforthepeople.ca noemi has recently started a position at the university of central lancashire at the time we've recorded this she doesn't yet have a profile page there For now, you can learn more about her work by checking out her published research articles. On our show website, you'll find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. This podcast is a labor of love by a crew of volunteers. If you're enjoying what you hear, please consider supporting us by donating through Patreon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 